edit it. I know. I'm glad you're being here. I don't have friends. I got family. <laughs> so that is a Vin Diesel quote from what what franchise is that from, Dan? Fast and Furious. Something I've not watched all the movies of, of course. But um, Vin Diesel memes of family have been circulating pretty heavily over the past few months, and. Believe it or not, there are 33 times in the Fast and Furious franchise where family is mentioned. And I, did I watch a compilation of all 33 times? Absolutely, including <laughs> one. Band, I need the link. Including one Spanish one at the end. So really, 34. Really um, but this this is the word that really sticks out to me. I, it's this sort of chapter is remarkably difficult for me to find like a unifying theme in order to teach something edifying out of, if that makes sense. There are certain ideas and principles out of it, but you don't normally, I think Schreiner said this, you don't normally think, ah, oh, we have a new believer, I want to disciple them. I'm gonna send them to Romans 16, where there's a bunch of names and a bunch of greetings. Obviously this meant something to them, but it's not as spiritually edifying right off the bat to us. And so in, in thinking of how to unify this, I thought of the word family. And the reason that I thought of this, number one, is the language is sort of implicit all throughout this. No, the word family is not mentioned. But this seems to be, to me, an obvious fulfillment of the Christian community coming together as your new family. This, to me, is Paul fulfilling what Christ taught in the Gospels, Matthew 12 and Mark 10. That was pretty fast, I know. It's right. It's, I mean, going for it. While he was still speaking with the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to the one who was speaking to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And then Mark chapter 10. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left, left house or there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Look around this room right now. These people are your brothers, literally for some of you, brothers and sisters. <laughs> These, this is your family. And no matter how far Paul went, no matter where Paul went, no matter how disconnected they got, these people always remain family for Paul. And as we move into our last time with a normal koinonia where we're meeting here and meeting regularly, I, I, that's the application that I really want to make tonight, is that no matter how far you go from these people, no matter where you end up in life, no matter how successful or how impoverished or how free or enslaved or you know, all these different situations that these people end up in, you never lose this family because you have, number one, been through a lot of stuff with these people, but number two, the bond of Christ will always carry you forward if you're a real Christian. And so 
I want you to know that we are family, you are my family, and I will always be there for you, Lord willing, if I can be in any capacity going forward. That's the tone, that's the unifying thing that I want to take away from tonight, is that we are family in the most Vin Diesel way possible. So before we dive into that though, one last time, and I didn't, if you have my, if you have my papers, I forgot to edit something here in this. I copy this week to week, and I'm sorry for that. This is a typo. But what do you remember from chapter 15? I can go, you can go. I think we've been pretty equitable and fair about these past couple. What is something that you remember from chapter 15? I mean, I'll be lucky if I remember something from it. So what are you guys taking away from chapter 15 for me here? Or do you want me to go? You guys want me to go? I'm happy to go. I wasn't here last week, so... I love, I love that. A lot of you weren't, so... You you were here. I was here. You were here. But he listened. <laughs> he listened to the podcast though. Unfair. I listened to it to today. David is a Marvel Easter egg. I did say that. <laughs> I did say that. Yes, absolutely. What does that mean? He's a Christ type. Is the word you used beforehand? Absolutely. So Christ is the true and better version of David. He does everything that David started to do and was intended to do. Absolutely. Anything else that you remember from Romans chapter 15? There were two main sections. There was a division because we were finishing chapter 14. What was, the, what was that flare that was coming from chapter 14? Yes, unity, absolutely. So we finished that up, and then we moved into Paul's like future plans. Where is Paul going? What's Paul about to do? What are some things that you took away from a discussion of this is how Paul viewed the remainder of his life? Anything? When one face closes, burn with Holy Spirit fire for the next one. Run the race completely in the phase of ministry that you are currently in. Yep, that's a really, that's a really good quote. Whoever said that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, how old was Paul, probably, when he was thinking of his new plans to go to Spain? 60. 60. 60-some. And this man is like, I'm, I'm ready to go. I want this new phase of life. I'm ready to learn a new language. He was ready to go. All right, I'm going to go ahead and dive into mine. I know a lot of you weren't here, and I know that's sort of unfair to put this on you. So instead, I want you to sort of track. Like, I try to write these in sequential order as we go through the passage. So just glance through the chapter as I read aloud. <coughs> Continuing a discussion on unity, Paul insists that... the that the strong put others first. Following the, the example of Christ, we learn from Scripture the hope we have, which gives us endurance to bear with and welcome one another for the glory of God. Because the division likely happened along ethnic lines, it is critical to see that Christ has served both Jew and Gentile in fulfillment of Scripture. While Paul recognizes that they know how to handle this, Paul reminds them since he is God's chosen vessel to build the Gentile church. Having established churches in the major eastern Mediterranean cities, Paul desires to go further west, preaching the gospel among the unreached. On his way westward, Paul intends to fellowship with the Roman church, but he must first deliver the collection of funds from Gentiles to the Jewish church of Jerusalem. Accordingly, Paul sought prayers for safety, acceptance of the gift by the church, and ability to come to the Roman church for spiritual refreshment as he prepared for the westward expansion of the gospel. 
All right. Now tonight we have two main overall sections, and then this the first one, which is just generally is referred to as greetings, if you follow along in the outline, which will disappear at 10 o'clock tonight off of the saved posts on Vand. I, I know how to work Vand, I promise. It, it's out there if you want to find it. The main section that we're going to be going through runs from verse 1 all the way to verse 23, and it's just greetings. We're going to go through four things within that, and then we'll just go through the benediction at the end. Our first subsection here is commendation of Phoebe. That's, that's really what this first little section is focused on, and it runs from verses 1 through verse 2. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Cantoria uh, Center, whatever, mm-hmm. that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So what do I want to take away from this? And this is how we're going to be going through this is obviously we can go through a word study of what everything means here. And I think we can do something better than that with the time that we have. Phoebe, and all throughout this passage, one of the main things that I want you to take away from Romans chapter 16 is the critical role that women played in the early church. There are many, many people listed in this. And out of all these people, Paul mentions nine different women that are essential to his gospel ministry. For Phoebe particularly, he mentions her as the commended sort of carrier of this letter, like, I approve of Phoebe. Now think about this, as you're going through the ancient world, you're traveling, there's not just the Hotel Six that you're gonna stop at. You sort of need to use your connections as you move throughout the ancient world. And so, oh, if you could produce a letter that says, you know, Paul, approves of this, I'm on my journey for Paul, that helps speed her way. So that is probably the function of this. Many ancient letters had something like this. Phoebe herself was probably a woman of high social estate, had a fair amount of wealth, uh, refers to her as a patron. She is likely um, from the city that is about eight miles outside of Corinth. And so Paul spent a fair amount of time in Corinth and he could have very well met her at this point in time. It was a rich seaport type of city and so there's a lot of money flowing through this and this is possibly how she achieved that high social status. Um, But there's plenty of debate about this passage. Anyone know why? Anyone know why there's debate on this passage within conservative versus liberal circles? There's two of these within this passage. I say one one bit of debate that might come from this is if whether or not women should should serve and should leave the church. Absolutely. Absolutely. That word for servant there, anyone know what that is in the Greek off the top of your head? It's the same word as deacon, right? It is, diakonos, yes. So, the question becomes, is Paul using this in a technical sense? Is he just, I mean, I can say somebody's a servant, and that can mean they're a designated servant, or it can just mean they're a servant. So there's plenty of debate over this, and I'm not going to get into necessarily whether or not women can serve as deacons particularly. I'm not getting into that full-fledged topic debate. But what I, I, what I do want to point out and affirm is that Scripture clearly teaches that women should not have a teaching role or in a, a role that has authority over men. Now, for instance, of all the people, John MacArthur, uh, Tom Schreiner, these are folks that are fine with women being deacons because of how they define what a deacon does. 
So a deacon are those that are visiting the poor. These are the servants of the church. They're going and helping the sick. They're, you know, sort of tending to needs. If that's how you view a deacon, then I personally haven't studied it a ton. I don't know if I would go so far as to refer to that in our culture, but if that's how you view a deacon as just sort of the servant role, of course, women can be servants within the church. We have people who are very servant-oriented within any church, and that is wonderful. That's a great thing. If you're defining deacon as some Baptist uh, churches do that are very much, they run the church, which I don't necessarily agree with that definition of deacon, but if you're rolling with that definition, then maybe we don't want to say that women operate in that function. So I'm not here to say whether or not women can be within the office of a deacon. It depends on so many other debates that you have to have. But what I am saying is that Phoebe was a very prestigious servant within the church. She was a wealthy person, and she was also a a very prominent servant within the church. And so I think for women, there are some really good lessons to be learned from Phoebe here in that, number one, if you want to be a servant within the church, it doesn't preclude you being a prominent woman of high social estate in society. And what I mean by that is do both. Pursue excellence in all circles. Phoebe was wealthy, which probably means she had some sort of enterprise. She was a patron. Something was happening where she had other big social responsibilities. And yet she was also able to be a major servant within the church. And so I think we can learn a lot from Phoebe in terms of women's ministries and just for women in general. Pursue excellence in all the circles that you can. Go be successful as you wish to be. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy and prominent. Nevertheless, seek to be just like Phoebe, who was overwhelmingly dedicated to the ministry of her church. Is that a hand or is that? Okay, perfect. Our second subsection is greetings to Roman Christians, verses 3 through 16. Now, before I have this read, I think it's important to say we could skip over this, and I think a lot of people do. But I want to remind you that verses 3 through 16, which may not seem initially appealing, are just as inspired as Romans 9, as Romans 6, as Romans 1. And so it's important to pay attention and to engage with these verses as we would any other verse within Scripture, verses 3 through 16. All right, bear with me. There's a lot of names. <laughs> You're fine. <laughs> Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epenetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known for, to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. <laughs> Greet the Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodion. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Ty Tryphania and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Ancicritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philagopus. Philologus, <laughs> Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. 
Within this section, there are 26 people that Paul greets, a couple of families and a few house churches while he's at it. So there's a lot happening within this very wordy passage. What, is, what does all this mean? Well, first, it means that we're going to be doing an overview and not tra tracing every single name through the book of Acts like I would do if we were spending weeks and weeks on this. So we're going to be going through general contours. Um, what else does it mean? And we're going to, I'm basically going to give you four main big picture points from this passage. And then we'll pick up on the backside a couple names that I think are of a special interest and note. So that's how we're going to approach this. I'm going to give you four main points. Uh, the first one is really, what does this mean? Why is Paul doing this? This is by far the longest. I mean, Paul has all of these at the end of his epistles pretty much, but why on earth does Paul spend so much time and ink and parchment on names? Why is he being so detailed here? And I think it fits well within the context of the letter. Paul has not founded this church. Paul has not been to this church, but Paul needs the church's support. Why? Because Paul's going out to Spain. His, his goal, he has a strategy to go out west. He wants to bounce off of this church, garner logistical and financial support probably, and shoot out. Well, okay, these people don't know Paul. We know Paul. We respect Paul. But Paul didn't actually get all the love that you might think that Paul got. He actually got quite a bit of hate. And so what Paul's probably trying to do here is place himself in the company of other people within the Roman church that they already know, that they already trust, and that they already approve of. So if you can imagine this, Paul's saying, I know this guy that you know, and I know this person that you know, and they've been faithful servants here, and I've actually worked with these people who helped to found your church. And so he's sort of placing himself in saying, we all agree on the same gospel. We're all on the same team. We're all heading in the same direction. And I think going with this, this is an important concept that Paul always works in a team. Even the great apostle Paul has 26 people here that he is associating with that have helped him out at some point that he respects and has had some sort of interaction with okay and so even if you are the best evangelist if you're the best at your area of your niche within the church you have to work within a team number one you're going to get burnt out you're going to be tired but number two there are just too many holes to plug within the local church for you to try to do it on a one-man show being that one-man team is not going to work out very well. We do need each other. And I, I mean, it's obvious. Go back to chapter one. Paul, Paul needs these people. And we're going to talk about this in just a moment. Number two, this rolls very well into point number two is that there is a very subtle transition within verse eight. Verse eight is sort of a demarcating line. If you're really paying attention that something shifts, it shifts from people that he knows very well, that he gives very detailed descriptions about, to people that he speaks of more generally. He shifts from people that are close associates in the gospel to people that are more acquaintances and he's interacted with them. What I want to point out here is that within the church, not every single person is going to end up being your best friend. Not everyone's going to be your BFF, if you will. You're not going to be the tightest that you could possibly be with every single person in a church the size of LifePoint or even in a group the size of this. It's just not possible. I went through a phase where I tried to have way too many best friends, and that crashed and burned really hard. You can't have 20 best friends. You're t you don't have enough time for that. There is going to be distinction, distinction between best friend and I'm a friend, and then I kind of know I'm an acquaintance. Okay, That's going to be there. That is okay. But it is never okay to form divisions along those lines. 
like, ah, you know, those are my acquaintances and these are my best friends. Paul is sure to extend a warm, familial welcome to people that he doesn't know quite as well, even, even if he isn't just that tightness and closeness with them. Why is this important? I have, I decided to make a point out of this because I have encountered people who genuine dis, genuinely dislike, genuinely dislike another person within the body of Christ. And because of that, they leave them at a distance. They then hid behind the fact that, well, we can't be best friends with everybody. And of course, they're right. But with how they're acting, they might as well have not been a family at all. And what I think is important here is that being in Christ means that you are a family with people that you may not find as enjoyable as your best friends that you click with just naturally. Even so, we have to love people and serve people within our family whether or not our personalities align, you know, just, oh, wow, we just hit it off. You're not going to hit it off with everyone, okay? But that doesn't mean that you have any excuse to not treat them like family. And Paul treats his best friends to acquaintances like the family they are within the gospel. Yes, sir. Actually, that goes with, at least with my experience, as that kind of goes along with actual family because actually yeah, I relate to that. And I got more, I got more cousins on my mom's side of the family than I could count. And several I am very close with, like my, like my first cousins and my, my second cousins, my cousins Harmony, uh, Gabrielle, and whatnot. And some of them I see so rarely I don't even in fully know their names. And but yeah, it's kind of the same thing as we all. Yeah, it's in the same way we still like each other because. We are part of the family and all that. So yeah. See. I'm so, sure. Yeah, I'm sure it. those of you that are not only children relate to that more than I do. But yeah, I. I mean, it's the same concept. It really is. That's my. Honestly, I'm not joking. I have so many cousins. Yeah. And some of them I only see like once every five years. Yeah. <laughs> So our first point there is that Paul's placing himself with other trustworthy people. Our second point is that Paul is treating everyone quite equally. He doesn't make distinction, distinctions and play favorites down social lines, if you will. Point number three, and I think this is interesting, if you do nerd out on sort of analysis of names, if you will, people have done analyses of these names to figure out what social status people come from, what ethnic background people come from because the names tend to have an implication to what stratus, strata of society you were from, what part of the Roman Empire, etc. What is interesting here is that by and large, it seems that the Church of Rome or Churches of Rome, as we'll talk about here in a moment, were largely comprised of Gentile slaves. Gentile slaves. Paul's Roman epistle was largely composed to those who have this background. Likely there are some Jews there, likely there are some people who are free as well. But this means that there are people with widely varying economic, ethnic, socio, socioeconomic status within the church. And the church is supposed to be the one place that we can be family. Within Koinonia, I think we see this in various different ways. We honestly bring together a very ragtag, random bunch of personalities and backgrounds and all sorts of different things. It's just 
you know, if you could pick people that you would be like, oh, I would hang out with them every weekend, it probably wouldn't be the grouping of people that we pick here. We have very interesting personalities that you wouldn't expect to mesh. We don't all come from a common interest of soccer or music or whatever. We all have different things, and that's wonderful. This is critical because this is what Paul's doing here too, is the same thing that bound all these Jews and slaves and Gentiles and free people and all of this is Christ. And it's the same for us here today. Same for us here today. Stephen pointed this out last week, and I think it's insightful. Paul is the Jewish PhD of his day. He is the most advanced scholar. I mean, he has all the training. But what is Paul hungry for? Paul's not hungry for more ivory tower academics. Paul's hungry for Gentiles of low educational status. And this goes very well with what we were talking about in prayer group. If you look back to chapter one, Paul is convinced that not only is he going to minister some blessing to the Roman church, but the Roman church is going to bless him. And Paul's the, well, Paul's Paul, okay? Paul's Paul, and he has all the education. What are they going to teach him? Probably not a lot. In what area are they going to tell him to be better as a Christian? I don't know. Maybe, I, don't, I obviously don't know Paul's struggles. Obviously, he struggled somewhere. But you just wouldn't expect Paul to be looking at Gentile, new converts, slaves, when he's a Roman citizen from birth, not just purchased it. You know, he is everything that you could want in terms of high society, if you will, that's choosing to go lower and choosing to minister to those who, who don't have that status. And, and the point I want to make here is that if you want to get involved in ministry and if you have big ambitions in ministry, and there's nothing wrong with having big ambitions in ministry, it is important to remember that you are a sinner saved by grace just like everybody else. And the higher you go in ministry, the more prominent you are, the more important you are, the more sway you have. And honestly, the more holy you become, the more educated you become in theology, none of that matters at the end of the day because you are all just one sinner telling another sinner where you found the living water. You are all on the same path. And I think this is just in context of all the church scandals that happen and how frustrating they are. It is critical to remember that Paul did not view himself as any better, essentially. Obviously, he still didn't give up his apostolic teaching role. He still felt he had this position to correct and to teach the church and to guard it. But he didn't view himself as, I can't get anything from these plebeians. That's a perfect word to describe them, actually. You know, he, that's a Roman word, but anyway, sorry. Um, I, I just got so caught on that word. <laughs> He didn't view these people as having nothing to offer him. And if you go into ministry and you work your way up somewhere, you know, whatever we make of the corporate structure of the church anyways, if you work your way up, never forget that you're just as good and just as bad as the person who's coming into church for the first time. Fourth and final point, if you look through, uh, final point in this section, let's get that very clear. It's not the final point. I wouldn't do that so early. I mean, we're only 27 minutes in. Fourth, if you look through this chapter, I think it is possible that you're going to see something very interesting about the Roman church model. Phoebe may have had people 
in her home. She's a patron, probably a large house for the church. Verse 5, we see that Priscilla and Aquila have had a church in their house. In verses 14 and 15, it seems that there may have been other churches in, and houses in Rome. What does this mean? This means that there may have been three to five house churches in Rome. I, I always thought of the Church of Rome as like the Church of Rome, okay? But what this text indicates is that there are numerous churches of Rome. In the same way that Galatia is a region and there's churches within Galatia, there are probably churches within Rome. And the reason for that's very practical. Even the wealthiest of people probably couldn't have held more than 70 or 80 of people within their home. There just wasn't space. And so what was the model of the Roman church? You build up one church, okay? We've got enough people, we're busting to the seams. You got space, we're going starting another church plan over here. I am not saying that there's anything wrong with larger churches. I think even in Acts, you see a very large church starting within Jerusalem. Big groups of believers, big churches have a specific role to play in the kingdom. They can do things that small churches just cannot do because you don't have the resources. And that's fine. There's a place for that. But what I do want to remind you of, though, is that it is very helpful to get plugged into smaller groups of believers wherever you may end up. And whatever that looks like. I know some churches have a small group model. Some have Bible studies. Some split them out by ages. Some split them out by other demographic ideas. I don't really care. My point is that Paul has these people who are in smaller groups, probably no larger than Fasanto size, if that gives you context. That's probably the absolute max that a group of a house church would go for a church of Rome. Small groups allow for many positives, such as truly getting to know each other, really being involved in each other's life, encouraging each other in a really tailored fashion, not just nebulous general statements of encouragement from a pulpit to 2,000 people. But like, I know Josh is struggling with this because we had a prayer group and we talked about this. And, you know, a couple days from now, if I so choose, I could text him and say, hey, are, how, are you, how are you doing with that? I, and as we do this, you can, you can continue to do that all, in, all the way down until it's just one person to one person. And you can be there for one another. If your church is if you're a part of a church that's rather substantial, it's rather large, and what happens with that often is you start to struggle under your own weight because there's dead weight whenever you have a large church. If you're ever in leadership, I, I want to encourage you, and I think Francis Chan, for things that I would disagree with him on, has done really well with this, is that you always have the option of encouraging your church to go do a church plant. Whether that means you have a actual church plant to a new church building or say, hey, we have a large demographic of people that are coming from this area, go meet in that church. If you're ever in a leadership position within a church, always remember that this is where we came from. Having 70 or 80 people, that's not a bad thing. And then you come together for other things where you can come together and have a larger function, that's fine. But if you are in a position where you're in leadership someday, I just wanna throw that out there that even Paul's Church of Rome that we're talking about here may have been smaller churches. And it's always something that should be on your radar is that those small churches are never something to scoff at. I think that happens both ways. Small churches scoff at large churches because they're, they have to be the creek. And you know, large churches, say, oh, you, you know, you're not doing a good job bringing people in. There's, there's hate that goes both ways, and it just really isn't necessary. Each have a unique role to play within the kingdom. 
So in terms of specific people, now we're gonna catch some people on the back end here. Aquila and Priscilla, it's referred to as Prisca here in, in uh, Romans. I prefer what, they're, they're called Aquila and Priscilla. It's a longer version of, I think, the male's name. It's a husband and wife team. I think it has a nicer ring to it. Aquila, Priscilla, it's, I, I, would, I would stumble over my words saying Aquila and Prisca every time. So Aquila and Priscilla, this is a husband and wife team. They've been with Paul from, from I mean, not from day one, but they've been there for a long time. They likely got kicked out of Rome because of a Jewish expulsion that happened um, with, with some, uh, just a certain political thing that happened there. They got kicked out of Rome. They went to Corinth. They met Paul, I believe, on a second missionary journey. They met Paul there in Corinth, and they worked with Paul in business. They helped him as tent makers. I believe this is in Acts 18 or 17, if you're really curious. I don't have it written down, but you can check me. Um, they worked with Paul in the tent making side of things. They, so there's the, the you know, economic business side, but then they also partnered with him in ministry, and he continued to work with them in Ephesus together uh, as a husband and wife team. They seem to have theologically instructed Apollos, who was a very gifted public speaker and orator and debating with the Jews, but he didn't fully understand the way of Christ, and so Aquila and Priscilla take him aside and instruct him. Um, in any case, they seem to have returned back to their home, which was originally Rome, and they deserve note as some of Paul's closest associates within the gospel. Uh, verse 7, Junia, is also a verse that deserves comment. Uh, Junia is likely a woman in another husband and wife team. Some have taken this text. Uh, oh my goodness. Up until about the 12th century, some people thought it was a man. There's been, I think it's fair to say that Junia is a female name. More than likely, it's a female name. But what people have done is some have taken this text to argue that Junia, as a woman, was an apostle. That's one reading of this text. If you're in circles where you're debating regarding whether women can serve as pastors and such, this is going to be a text that you will probably encounter is, hey, Junia likely served as an apostle. And so I wanted to comment on that. Um, they're gonna take this to say thus, if, they're, if she's an apostle, then there can be no restrictions on what role a woman could play within the church. Uh, first, I wanna briefly say that Paul may not have used apostle in the technical sense in a couple other places in the New Testament. Paul basically uses this to mean commissioned one, uh, looser, like commissioned missionaries, just people that are sent out. That is a possible use of the word apostle in the same way that ecclesia basically means gathering, right? We think of it as like the church, but they were just like, the gathering where we get together. So there are technical uses and non-technical uses for the same word, um, but it also could mean, and I think this is very syntactically and linguistically possible, is that means they were well known to the apostles. That is to say their ministry, husband and wife team again, was well known by the apostles themselves. Like what they did was well known to Peter, like Peter and people like Peter and Paul and James. And so their ministry was noted and accepted by the apostles. That is another possible reading of this. In either case, this verse is not a strong verse to lean on in proving that Junia served in the technical like 12 apostles sense. It's, a, it's just a very weak text to turn to, but it is something that you may hear and I want you to be aware of that. They're all very noteworthy people, of course. For instance, Rufus, verse 13. I just liked this one because you like, you can get little interconnected bits of the New Testament, Rufus is probably, well, possibly. Rufus is a very common ancient name. But Rufus is named as one of the sons of Simon of Cyrene who helped to carry the cross for Christ on, on the uh, Via Della Rosa. And 
So, you know, it's all over, right? Like, Simon takes this back to Africa. His son could be a convert, could go to Rome. And you can just see how Christianity is spreading over the Roman Empire. There's all sorts of neat little connections as we go through here. In any case, I want to apply this to us today in a very, very simple way, like overly simplistic type of way. If many of us do end up going separate ways, stay in contact, okay? That's, I, I mean, I hate to make it so simplistic, but with the technology that we have, Keep challenging each other to stay theologically sharp if you want to take the first half of Romans. Challenge each other to stay morally sharp if you want to take the latter bits of Romans. Like Paul's, share updates on your ministry plans. Ask for help when you need it. Be there for each other when you are apart. That is what Paul's doing here. He's not with these people. He hasn't seen them in a long time. He's greeting them. Stay in contact with people when you, when you don't get to see them. It's always good to check in on your Christian family, no matter how far you go apart. And we, of all generations, have literally no excuse to not stay in contact to some degree. So don't be a stranger to people that you are a family with because we have every opportunity to encourage each other. That's when you're apart. What are you supposed to do when we are together, however? Look at verse 16. Wherever you have been serving, hopefully we can confidently view them as extensions of this family that we've developed here. Let's say that you go out and really connect and lead in this church and you become a family with them, then maybe they're an extension of it. All the churches greet you, but what are you to do when you get back together? What does Paul say? <laughs> what does Paul say you're supposed to do when you greet the brothers, Danny? Greet each other with a holy kiss. That's right. Are we doing this biblically? I thought of you as I... No, I'm okay. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I, I, I didn't write this in. Danny, I, went up, I think I went up to you one time and I said hi and I said, are we doing this biblically? <laughs> Gave him a kiss on the cheek just to... Anyway, whatever. My, my point is, is that... Oh, what? I just have a question. How many of you have been kissed by Sam? Raise your hand. Woo! Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Greet the brothers with a... Josh doesn't know. <laughs> Holy, a holy kiss, a holy kiss. That's the only, no. But what do I think is relevant for us out of this? What do I think is relevant for us out of this text? In some cultures, this is still directly relevant. In America, this is, I just encourage you to go into church next time and greet, <laughs> greet a brother with a holy kiss and see how far that takes you. Do that, and next time you're in an elevator, just rub somebody's head. Just go up to them and just go like that. You know, see, the things that are very awkward. This is not how we do this in our society anymore. But I think it is fair to say that every society, I think it's fair to say, at least every society I've been in, has, has had some form of a physical affection of greeting. I mean, some countries still do a kiss on the cheek, some do a hug, some do a handshake, whatever that is, whatever is that familial greeting, not like we're having a business transaction, whatever is your family greeting type of thing, that's what Paul wants you to do here. And oddly enough, I actually make a bigger deal out of this than I think a lot of places do, and I, this does come from Fasantos to some degree. But the reason that it's a big deal to me is I think there's something very psychologically important to having some sort of appropriate, kind, physical touch. I think it can have monumentally important psychological ramifications to promote the realism that you are a family. You, you would go home and hug your mother, for instance, or hug your father or whatever. When we, when we act very stranger-ish 
towards each, towards each other physically. I think it also can promote a spiritual, emotional distance. And so when we're together, if you're getting back together with people, greet them with a big hug and just a big smile and tell them you're really glad to see them because that's important, right? To, to see each other and to embrace, I think is critical to feel like you're actually a family. And I think that's what Paul is trying to get at here. Our third subsection is a warning, a promise, and a prayer for grace, verses 17 through 20. I appeal to you, O brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrines that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ with their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Anyone hear uh, reflections of the intro in chapter 1, where he's talking about their goodness being known through all the world and these sort of things? As Koinonia shifts, my warning here is the exact same, and we'll talk about this at the Love Feast for sure, as Paul's warning to the Roman church. Please, for the love of God and of everything good, stay away from false teachers. Keep growing to a point that you can discern between those that are true and those that are false on your own. If you see people, leaders particularly, that are creating divisions within the church, teaching spiritually damning things that are contrary to the gospel, if you see people that are self-centered, and this could mean a Jewish reference to food, or it could just mean focused on gluttonous, money-oriented leaders and pastors, avoid them like certain individuals did during COVID-19. You know, it's just avoid them like the plague is what I, you know, you know what I mean? Anyways, just avoid that type of false teacher with everything that you have at all costs. Avoid leaders like that. False teachers, however, Paul recognizes this, have a tendency to be charismatic folks who can sway a crowd. They know how to work an audience. They have a magnetism to them. Luckily, this last week I was at school. Out of the blue, some of my non-believing friends said, I don't know where this came from. They were like, Sam, you have all the necessary characteristics to be a cult leader. (laughs) Thank you. And somebody else was like, you know, I would agree with that, actually. And then Trevor was like, I I drink the Kool-Aid. And I was like, oh, my God. So, <laughs> so I, I don't know what this is about, but apparently false teachers have a magnetism, a ability to sway crowds, um, similar to the Church of Rome, by and large, the group of people here, at, here we have at Quinonia are obedient towards, they're an obedient bunch towards the gospel. With that said, reflecting Jesus' teaching, you guys need to be on your toes. You need to be wise as serpent, serpents and innocent as doves. You need to be ready. False teachers are coming. If you want to read the text that I'm going to be teaching on for out of Acts 20, that's one of Paul's main things in the farewell address is that false teachers are coming. We will be very, I'm, I'm serious right now, we will be very lucky if in 50 years everyone here is still faithful to the gospel. We will be very, very lucky if that's the case. Or alive. Or alive. 
40 years, 30 years. We're going to be very lucky, okay? I've seen a lot of people already go. We're going to be very lucky if we have all of us make it through the day of judgment as, as a family still. And so false teachers are coming. They're coming for you. Don't be naive. They're coming. They want you. Satan wants you. Be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Here is the balance we have to strive for, though, is a balance between being critical while also being accepting. Do not become so cynical that you can't appreciate anything that a true teacher says. There will always, always be something to nitpick about their teaching and your disagreements with them. Don't become that critical. And don't forget that your pastor does sin and needs grace as well. On the other hand, develop your ability to be critical with a joyful, loving spirit that looks out for others. Imagine yourself as a watchman for a city. And I, I can't remember his name, the dude that guards Asgardia. Um, that, I just like, that's the picture in my mind. Um, you, you, I want you to envision yourself as a watchman of a city. You must be critical to not allow items of danger into your city, the church, wherever you're at. On the other hand, you cannot become so critical that you let nothing in and thereby starve your city out. Does that make sense? You're going to have to have a balance. Things have to come in. People have to pour into people in your church. Don't become so critical that you think you're the only bastion of truth left. But also... Don't become so accepting that you just turn a blind eye to everything coming through the door, so to speak. We must be balanced. We must be objective in this matter. With that warning complete, the promise is that God will soon defeat Satan. Satan is soon to be thrown into the lake of fire. False teachers whom Satan has stirred up. That is one of them. That is where Satan operates, by the way, mainly. Your, your like sin of gossip the other day, that was probably your flesh's desires. More than likely, it seems like James would indicate that your flesh stirred up that desire for sin within you. Satan is not omnipresent. Satan, I think, works more through false religions on a larger scale and, and things. And this is one of the main ways that Paul, I think, indicates that Satan does this, is that when he looks at false teachers infiltrating the church, he looks behind that and sees Satan operating. And the promise here is that Satan will ultimately be defeated soon. Soon Satan's going to be defeated. Christ is coming. This will be put to rest. The church will be pure. The attacks will end. The false teachers that are on Satan's team will finally be put to rest. But in the meantime, we must rest on that promise that we have that Satan will be defeated by Christ. You can bank on that. That final judgment is coming for them. But if that final judgment is really coming, then guess what that also means? That also means the final judgment is coming and you have to be ready for the final judgment, which is why he has this prayer for grace, I think, attached right behind it. Yes, God's condemnation is coming on the false teacher, but wow, God's judgment is fiery. It is fierce. Woe to them who look forward to the day of the Lord. That is not a good day. The only reason, the only way that you can make it through that day of judgment of false teachers is what? That grace that we have in Christ Jesus. So, how do we make it through? How do we make it through any differently than the false teachers? The false teachers are not in the sphere of Christ that we've been talking about. And so, yes, we have a promise that condemnation is coming, but also a prayer that we would appropriate the grace of Christ that is going to save us from that eschatological judgment into our daily life. 
yes, in the final analysis, false teachers will be dealt with. And yes, in the final analysis, Christians will get on through because of the blood of Christ. But let's talk about today. We need to be on guard against false teachers. And the only way that we're going to do that is appropriating that end time grace of Christ into our daily life. What is true in the end must be true for us here today as well. Our fourth and final section then, our fourth and final section of the greeting is um, greeting from Paul's companions, verses 21 through 23. This is our, our tail end of the subsections here. As many of you may know, we're just working through these names here. Timothy was probably Paul's son in the faith. He was perhaps Paul's closest ministerial companion. We can merely conjecture about Lucius. Jason is probably the same Jason from Acts 17 who provided place, a place for Paul to stay in a very difficult time in Thessalonica when people were attacking Paul and dragging Jason out into the streets. Paul gave, or rather Jason gave Paul a shelter in a difficult time in a difficult city political state. And so here we have Jason still alongside of Paul. Uh, Sosipater um, was probably with Paul in his Asia region journey. If you look into Acts chapter 20, some of the first verses, we have a different version of his name there. And so these are some of Paul's long-term ministers in the gospel with him. Tertius was uh, called what, what is called an amenuensis for Paul. This is the person who writes down what Paul is saying. He's writing on behalf of Paul. Gaius probably helped house Paul and maybe some others while he was at Corinth. He helped to sort of shelter them in their time there. Erastus seems to held a, have held a very important point, a uh, public position within Corinth as a treasure. And then there are some inscriptions within the archaeology at Corinth, which would indicate that he had a different position later on. Perhaps he got promoted or something, but there seems to be some inscriptions of this same name within the archaeology of Corinth, which is kind of cool if you ever want to go on an archaeology tour of Corinth, like I would love to do, but we have to go on our honeymoon to a nice island instead, instead of Greek historical sites. Uh, I know, I know. It's so hard to not turn into a history tour. But, yeah, um, so he is mentioned in the archaeological records there in Corinth as well. Now we move into our last section within the book of Romans. And our last section of me teaching exegetically here at Koinonia. It's been, a, it's been a very fun run, and I'm glad we made the switch halfway through First John. It was, it was time. It was time for me personally, and it was a good move for us here at Koinonia. And it has only made concrete what I was learning to be true is that people, people become better Christians on every front, practically and theologically when you just preach the word of God and let the spirit apply it and nothing wrong with doing some application yourself but when you just teach the word of God week in and week out good things happen and and that's that is something that I've taken away and I hope you guys have taken away is that the word of God has transformative power maybe not in a one-off sermon where it's a high pressure high intensity moment, but year after year of turning to scripture and being faithful to the word of God will always return good things in people whom the spirit of the Lord resides. We end with our concluding doxology, verses 25 through 27.
for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the uh, prophetic writing has been made known to all nations according to the commands of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise men to be glorified forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. A doxology, by definition, is some expression of praise which is directed toward God. And here we see Paul conclude with his comments of praise to God. As Paul did for the Roman church, I, I thank God for what he has done here within Koinonia. As we conclude our last lesson, I want to affirm with Paul what has been affirmed throughout all the ages of the church, is that it is God who is able to keep each one of you, my brothers and sisters. He is the reason that we will stand before him one day together again in heaven. And this strength only comes through the gospel, which has always been and there will always be the preaching Christ crucified for our sins and our salvation. The deeper I study the Old Testament, the more I see how Christ is literally and actually everywhere within every chapter of the Old Testament. It was hidden as a mystery for ages. It was not obvious how God intended that plan to go forward. But my friends, we live in the last epoch of human history. We are at the end of the chapter of human existence, and we live under that same word soon. Soon our Lord will return, and the mystery will be completed. All of God's plan will have been brought to fruition. The truth about Jesus, how he is the Messiah, and the one whom the word of God points to, has been made known to us here today. So who has it been made known to? It has been made known to all the nations, not just the Jews, but Gentiles as well. Us in this room, Koinonia, this is the, this is the people that Paul wanted to know the gospel. That was his passion, is people like us who didn't grow up with the law naturally and didn't have the patriarchs in our family heritage. But now we get to be partakers of this gospel and there is room in the family of God because it was God's sovereign plan. He has always intended to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. That was the point from the garden. It's been the point through Abraham. It's been the point through David. It's been the point through Israel and the prophets. And it is only in Christ that it has finally been realized that the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth to cause obedience, the obedience of faith which is the gospel. What must we do to work the works of God? Believe in him who the Father has sent. So as we stand in this place in human history where we can see so much more clearly the majestic wisdom of God's plan, we praise him. God, you are the only wise God. You deserve to be glorified forever among the nations. And it is because of your son and the glorious gospel by which we can glorify you. Let the gospel of Jesus Christ be proclaimed forever and ever and ever. Amen. Romans 16 summary. Paul concludes his epistle to the Romans with a great number of greetings. By placing himself in the company of many faithful Christians, Paul establishes his unity with them. From women to slaves to Jews to Gentiles to free to acquaintances to closest companions, the gospel brings people together, knit in love, who greet each other warmly. Paul wants to ensure that this Roman church, like all churches, strongly avoids false teachers who are smooth-talking agents of Satan. Victory over the lies is assured as we stand in Jesus' grace. With the greetings of his companions, 
excuse me, Paul closes in praise to God. God is the one who will keep his people through the power of the gospel of Jesus. The light of the truth shines most clearly in this final period of human history as all nations come to faith in Christ. With a plan as wise as this, we glorify this all-wise God and we can only come before him because of Christ, our hope in both life and death. And all these summaries are put out in a document on band now so that you have about a four-page summary of the book of Romans if, if you would like and you can just glance and see what a chapter is all about. As it stands today, then, this is our last lesson in this format. This summer I will be, obviously we have sort of our last lecture, if you will, uh, with the Love Feast. This summer I will be, con I'll be leading discussion, if you will, but it will be progressively leading less and less on me. I may even hand it off depending on how um, I'm working on some plans in the background that I will soon be sharing with you in a more formal sense of a long-term direction of what people here are going to be left with. But um, just, so, just so you guys know, I am working on things and, and setting things up so that you guys have somewhere to be if you want to be somewhere. If you would allow me, um, allow me to close. Um, I'll treat it like a prayer, um, but this is, I'm just going to read the doxology from uh, Jude 24 and 25. <clears throat> now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen.